Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Everyone's got to follow rules. Kids at home, at work, driving, we all got to follow the rules. And those rules are designed to prevent exactly what happened here. And they were broken, and I get to pay up. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry, along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. How are you? Good, good. Um, we were just talking about uh, some trips that we're uh, planning on taking uh, now that we've been vaccinated and can move around the country again. And I think you're getting ready to go. Hey, Jay, I've never been to Vegas. Um, so we'll see. I think people who know me might not really think it's my scene, but I'm hoping to be pleasantly surprised. I think you're going to get just a uh, just a horrendous gambling habit after you've been to Las Vegas. And- I've only oh. been gambling yeah. once. I went right. to Tunica. Um, I played nickel slots and I won $60 on my third nickel and I stopped playing. I wow. was in college, so I really needed that 60 that's, bucks. <laughs> that's usually where they hook you. They, yeah. they hook you in and then you just keep playing. Yeah, see, so, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to have fun. I'm looking forward to it. Um, what about you, Steve? Any fun trips? Uh, family trips. I'm doing a vacation style, you know, Chevy Chase, put them all into the van and we're going to drive up the East Coast and we're going to like hit all the historical sites. And I know my girls are... They're just so excited about me stopping and seeing every historical site up the East Coast. Well, but, but they, is, get go, they get to go to New York City, Philadelphia, Boston. We're going to hit some great cities. That's so. cool. Those are the memories. Well, yeah. um, let's go ahead and introduce our guest and find out if he's doing any uh, fun trips. Our, we have a fantastic lawyer on the show with us today. We have Arash Hamampur, and I'm going to tell everybody a little bit about him. But before I do, Arash, do you have any fun trips coming up this summer? Well, we're going to Vegas. Uh, the largest plaintiff attorney organization in California is Cala in Los Angeles. And we have an annual Vegas convention that is full of really like top notch speakers, awesome information, great networking, and then probably the most degenerative degenerate <laughs> behavior you can think of that is all under a confidentiality protective order. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. All I'm not allowed that. to talk about it, but the That's work right. hard, play hard diagram is in full force and effect in Sin City. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, that is awesome. Well, so as our listeners might have guessed, Arash practices in California. He is the founder of the Hamampur <laughs> Law Firm, and you can look him up at hamampur.com. That's H-O-M-A-M-P-O-U-R.com. Um, they're based in Sherman Oaks, but they practice all over California and get really terrific results. I can't wait to talk about the case that we're going to talk about later, but they're just so many terrific results and so many um, amazing accomplish- accomplishments by Arash. There's a lot I want to talk about, but I've kind of picked some of my favorites. Um, he's got record-setting verdicts, 12 eight-figure and 15 seven-figure verdicts um, that I tallied up. There might be more by now. Um along with many terrific settlements in, in 2021. So this year he was the fifth ranked lawyer in Southern California by super lawyers, which is extremely impressive. Um, he was previously named as one of the top 30 plaintiffs lawyers in the state by the LA daily journal and, uh, the Com- consumer attorneys association of Los Angeles, who, which I think we've talked about on the show several yeah. times before Steve, yeah. um, awarded him with the 2018 Ted Horn Memorial Award presented to the lawyer who's presented outstanding legal service to the community. Um, tons of terrific um, awards. He's been on CNN. He does a lot of legal analysis on TV. Um, and 
one of the things I really wanted to to, uh, to ask you to talk about Arash is your work um, with your There Is a Light Foundation, um, which takes its name from a Smith song, which is I love the Smiths. So I thought that was very cool. But can you tell a little? Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that foundation and what you're seeking to accomplish? Because it's such a cool way to give back. Sure. So uh, there are so many people in life that five thousand dollars is an insurmountable amount of money to accumulate so that they, they can get to the next level, whether it's dental school, technician school, cosmetology school, fixing something. There are so many people that if they had that amount of money, it would really transform their existence, but they never have access to it. So my thing is funding this foundation. I started with a million of my own money and I'm going to get other money from other people and contribute every year and just provide micro grants to individuals um, based on, you know, proving that they need it. We pay it directly if we can to the vendor or whoever they have to pay. Um, And the condition of it is that they come back and share their experience so they can uh, help and inspire other people. So it's going to be financial assistance, coaching. We're having attorneys and other professionals offer services and just really inspire people to understand that you can start with nothing or at any point in your life and get to the next level if you just have the financial and or coaching support. And so, you know, I'm one of those human beings that if I'm rich or successful, I don't think it's because of something I'm born to do, some bullshit predestination. It's hard work and luck. And it's your obligation if you're successful to share it with the world. Money has no value whatsoever if you can't share it. So, the There is a Light Foundation is from a Smith song, which is my favorite song. It's also about like never wanting to go home, but that's a separate topic. <laughs> but my thing is I'm a candle and I want to light as many candles in this universe. That's my purpose on this earth. So I want to light as many people up and let them get to where they want to get in life. And that's the whole point. That's great. I mean, that's a, just a fantastic foundation and uh, it's uh, very impressive. And it's such a great idea, too, because I it, it is like that that lump sum amount, you know, that it doesn't have to be a ton of money, but that it, that can be so hard to acquire. I mean, I remember after college, it just was like one of my paychecks was rent and the other paycheck was everything else. Um, and, and so it, even if you're doing OK month to month, you know, to get that chunk of money together that you need is so hard. So what a fantastic idea. Um, I love it. So I, I wanted to make sure you got to talk about that. Um but let's go ahead and dig into the case that you're here to talk about and the, the terrific result that you got. I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit about it, um, and then we'll just dig into the case and, and get to ask you questions about it. But terrific. It's not a terrific result. It's an outlier, crazy result, considering they offered $5,000 to settle I, this, so to which my response was, you might as well have asked me to pay you money. For right. $5, <laughs> right. Right. I, I saw that and I thought that that was just a mistake. I thought that there's no way all they offered was $5,000 in the type of case you're talking about here. And and what and I think you also wrote that you off, uh, demanded to settle something like $9 million, which was far below uh, what the, the 60, verdict was. Yeah, yeah. $60 yeah. Million. Right. I mean, literally, this is like a movie. And in fact, in the back of my mind, I'm going to turn this case into a movie. It's kind of like Rainmaker. I was going through a divorce at the same time. Um, it was like a lot of emotional stuff. When that verdict was read, I got to tell you, I was weeping. My co-counsel, we were weeping like babies because to get an insulting, ridiculous $5,000 yeah. offer in the context of a death of a wonderful mother, best friend, wife, um, in this case, with all the facts that we had developed pre-trial was so insulting. But I'm so grateful for these lowball offers because then I get to get a case in front of a jury. I mean, I really right. am grateful. 
So Right. And, you know, it's interesting you said, because we've talked about that and, you know, our firm has uh, have been blessed to have some very good results and all of my best results have come in either zero offer cases or where it was very close to a zero offer. And it's because they just, they make it so easy to go try the case. Well, they don't understand. You're doing me a favor. I'm right. like an actor that wants to go and be on stage. Like you have no understanding of what's about to happen to you. I don't say these things to them, but in my head, I'm like, right. please, let's not settle. <laughs> please lowball my client. Let's go to trial. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's shocking in a case like this. So so the case is is Kenneth Scheinling on behalf of his his wife Amy who passed away as we mentioned and we'll and we'll get more into um, versus Sunbeam Products um, Incorporated. The case was ultimately tried in the United States District Court for the Central District of California. Um, the underlying facts and when you hear these, there's so much more behind this. So when you read kind of a summary of of what happened here, I can't wait for you to talk more Arash about, you know, going through your opening, um, how you really right away in, in the first like page of the transcripts fleshed out something that I didn't really know that just puts a whole yeah. other dynamic on the case. But so kind of burying the lead. So let me just dig into <laughs> it. Um, so I don't even remember what was it that I said? <laughs> I'll remember. Um, yeah, so I'll tell you, cause it's going to be yeah. my first question to you. Um, so let me tell our listeners the, the factual background. Um, in the early morning hours of January 5th, 2011, um, Kenneth, the plaintiff, woke up to um, a blazing fire in his bedroom, um, which he shared with his wife, Amy. And it sounds like one of their the youngest of their three daughters was also in the room at the time. Um, and there was a fire that had already started at some point when they were asleep caused by a home Sunbeam HQ307 radiant heater um, that did not shut off after something must have fallen or, or somehow something got too close to the heater, maybe a hamper full of clothes um, that accidentally fell near the heater and had started the fire. Um, Amy, unfortunately, passed away in the fire. And we're going to talk more about just the 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 horrendous ordeal that this family um, went through, but she had basically asked Kenneth to go and save the kids. And that's what he did. Um, and so he saved their three daughters from the fire, but Amy unfortunately passed away. Arash represented um, Amy's family in a case for defective design and failure to warn against Sunbeam. Um, Sunbeam, among other things that we'll dig into, had failed to provide consumers with warnings about not using the heater while sleeping. And they had advertised this um, automatic safety feature that sounds very appealing, which is basically that it the heater was shut off if things got too hot. But that's really not how it would work if it was getting something that was too hot out that was not within the heater itself. And so we'll talk about that, but it was basically a very misleading advertised safety feature. Um, so finally, Arash tries the case in 2015 well, after an insulting offer. And after a six day trial and two days of deliberations that an LA jury found in favor of Amy's family um, with a massive result, 80% of the fault allocated to Sunbeam, um, almost 60 million in damages. And the, the way that broke down, there was a lot of detail, which included um, bystander and direct injuries uh, for the 
emotional suffering of the three daughters and of Kenneth. And, and as most of our listeners know, and lawyers know bystander damages, um, they are not easy and it's tough to establish. And Arash did such a fantastic job. So $58.65 million verdict. There's so much to dig into, but what I mentioned earlier, Arash, and one of the things I wanted to ask you to explain is in your opening, one of the first things that you did with the jury is you explained the difference between radiant and non-radiant space heaters and what that difference means in terms of the risk of fire. And I, that was something I did not know. I have a space heater under my desk right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, it, it was a learning experience for, for me as well, and I'm sure for the jury, but it, 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 I want to hear Arash talk about it, but it's just uh, such a great way to set up the, uh, the case for an opening. Well, the ridiculous part is the defense own engineer didn't know this distinction. Their head of safety, their corporate spokesperson could not explain the distinction between a radiant and a non-radiant heater. And obviously, when we originally got the case, I had no idea. It was only after, you know, understanding the dynamics of, of the differences between these heaters, really spending a lot of time that I was able to distill and explain it. But basically, a radiant heater radiates heat from the unit away such that objects that are within three to six feet can get to combustible temperatures or higher very easily and get up to 600 degrees. A non-radiant heater generates heat internally and anything around it will never be higher than the internal temperature of the non-radiant heater. So if you have a shutoff that turns that heater off, if it goes over 150 Fahrenheit, um, it will work. It'll shut that thing off before it starts a fire because at 150, it's not going to start a fire. Whereas a radiant heater, you could have whatever sensor you want within the heater. It will not know six feet away. It is like the sun burning something. Um, that heater, the safety device won't work. That's the case. Now, the defendant didn't understand this distinction. And not only did they not understand this distinction, they were falsely saying on their box and in their advertising the opposite. So when a consumer walks into Home Depot and goes, which one am I going to pick? They have absolutely no idea. That's the case. No one in their right mind would buy a heater that has a safety feature that would never work in a foreseeable event when at night, you're using that heater to, to heat you up. Could something get in the path of that heater? They already know that because they warn about it. No one would buy that heater. That was the case. Right. right. They were dying. It's like, how, what are you people thinking not resolving this case? <laughs> in one side of my head, the other side of my head is like, let's not resolve this case. Thank you. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I think that was such an effective way to lead to because I think you can read sort of one sentence about the case and think, um, who knows what you think? Maybe you think, oh, you shouldn't leave a space heater on or whatever. Um, but I think from from that first, you know, just the first couple things that you say to the jury, it had to be effective for them because they understand, OK, it's not simple. I don't I don't know what's really going on here. And and neither would these people, neither would this family. Um one of the other things that I want to make sure that we explain is that it sounds like there was a lot of um, knowledge on the behalf of uh, on behalf of Sunbeam that the way this space heater was designed and the way this safety feature uh, supposedly you know was going to work, the way it was it was sensing heat where it was placed, it would never detect anything that was really close to the base of the space heater, mm -hmm. and so it was really not effective for actually telling whether something was about to catch on fire. 
Right. I mean, as product liability attorneys, we have a basic understanding of engineering principles. What's the hazard? Design it out. If right. you can't design it, guard against it. If you can't guard against it, warn it. And yet when you look at a lot of these products that result in serious injury and death, there is no one who's done that analysis. And you can in five minutes go through a truck design and go, why do you have the tanks of fuel exposed right. in one of the most vulnerable positions in a frontal collision that's going to kill everyone? Right. right? And so, again, as attorneys, you know, we have to learn about medicine, engineering. And so we learn about it fresh. We learn about it with like a new set of eyes. Mm -hmm. We kind of learn about it in a way where we have to understand it so simply because we're not educated in it, like through school, that we get a different sort of perspective on it, a more human, everyday Joe understanding. And then when you take that and you confront their engineers they're done. So you, many times you get them to admit things like we got their engineers to admit that they didn't understand the, the risk they should have and that this is not OK. Yeah, I, I would. I would. I mean, what the, what I really loved about your opening and we've talked about, you know, these concepts of primacy and recency in, uh, you know, the way you present a case before. Um, but, you know, like if, if I was to go and just from a jury bias standpoint, I was to go and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you that somebody left their space heater on some clothes caught on fire in their bedroom. You know, who do you think's at fault? Most people, if you say it like that, are going to say, well, the family probably should have not kept clothes around there. You know, it's their fault. But when you spend, you know, the, the first what looked like to me about 10 to 15 minutes just talking about the product and talking about how it's designed and why in this particular product it would catch on fire and why the sensor would never work the way they had it, uh, the way they had it designed. And then they were telling everybody, hey, if this thing overheats, it's going to shut off so you can be safe. Starting that way, it's like before you even get to the facts of what happened in the case, the jury's already know, already knows, okay, I know something bad's going to happen here and I know it's because of this product. So it I, that's what I really loved about the way Way you did the opening here in the order you, you you did the opening. Right. I mean, like, look, let's design this product. It's a space heater. Where do people use it? In their home. Where? Bedrooms to keep them warm. Are they sleeping? Yes. Hey, we make this space heater. What are the risks that are associated with human use? By the way, we make products for human beings. Human beings right. make mistakes. There's airbags in your cars. There's seatbelts in your cars. There's, you know, things in the road to prevent crossover accidents. We look at this space heater. We go, what are the risks? Something can get in front of it and start a fire. How do we know that? There's a warning on it. Now, are we effectively doing something about protecting the humans who are buying our product? So if you walk through the jury of this is the way they're supposed to do it, this is the analysis they're supposed to do, we're all working for the company as junior engineers and we're going to do it the right way, there's no way in hell you would sell this product. Someone along the way of all the billions of people or whoever working on or behalf of this company would be like, that's not safe because if something gets right. in front of this heater, that safety shutoff is not going to work. And by the way, all of this that we're going through jury they should have done before they put this product on the shelf, not after someone's died. And then right. their defense is, well, how many people have died? One, can you trust their statistics? No. And two, who cares? Is there ever, I always ask this of the engineers, hey, is there some rule at Sunbeam that says, wait until 10 people die to fix something that you know is, or should know is hazardous? Uh, no. All right. Duh. Like you should have fixed it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I, I just have the ability to take really complicated 
what could be perceived as complicated from the defense side and make it extraordinarily simple and give visuals and have the jury follow. And, you know, it's really easy because the defendants have their myopic bag of tricks. They start with, they violated the warning, da, 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 and then you're like, keep that narrative going. Wait to see how I reframe the case in opening because guess what? I get to talk first. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this. But now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. I was very, um, you know, we were opening the materials that you had sent us to prepare to talk to you. And I was really surprised when I, I pulled up the opening transcript. I thought maybe I didn't have it all because, um, you know, we had the condensed version that has got, he's got the four pages on a page, but it was still so short that I thought that maybe we didn't have it, but reading it, I mean, you just kind of did everything that you needed to do and kept it really tight. And as you were saying, you, you, you really simplified things into what this was really about and made it um, made it so relatable to the jury. Because I think that's one of the things in general about consumer products cases, but especially as lawyers, when we learn about like one of the things you had in this case was the, the certification from the from UL, from the underwriters um, um, laboratories. I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that, what that really meant versus what consumers think it means when they see that. Well, it's just ridiculous. It's like they say, well, we have all these certifications, right? And if anyone watched Netflix, that movie about, there's just a reading Netflix about dolphin safe tuna. It's fraudulent. Right. They paid for it. No one's actually checking it, right? I love the the, the, the by, one good byproduct of COVID is everyone's reading and watching a lot more information. And there's a lot more journalistic stuff going out there, pro-consumer revealing the government doesn't do anything. NHTSA testing means nothing. 
a stamp of approval from some paid for company not only doesn't mean what you think it says, but it's fraudulent for this attorney to get up in front of you and imply it has anything to do with safety. So I love taking these bullshit defenses and kind of like letting them do, you know, make their claim and then undermine it and show not only is this not true, it's the opposite of what this person is saying to you. This is why we need you in this courtroom. You're a pinnacle of, of our democracy and you have to hold them accountable. Yeah, you know, and especially in product cases in Rosh, you do a lot of them. And, um, you know, you always hear no matter what product case you have, that it meets or exceeds, you know, the federal regulation or meets or exceeds, you know, the the, uh, you know, underwriters laboratory standards. And I thought you did just a just a great job of, of bringing out, you know, like one you know, underwriters laboratory basically makes its money by saying, you know, hey, let us do the testing. And then you get to put our stamp of approval and then tell people that it's safe. So it's a it's basically a marketing tool, um, you know, so it, it just a very nice job. But that is always uh, in any products liability case you have, that's always going to be one of their first lines of defense is that they they met or exceeded every single standard regulation, whatever is out there, which are all bare minimums, all of them. And then side note, federal court. See, federal court is like that beautiful girlfriend you get that you probably don't deserve that some people are like, wait, what is what? what I love federal court. Less is more, man. Federal court, the judge is like, you got four days or five days to try this case. I love that. I hate trials that go on for four months or two months with unnecessarily garbage. I love tight, concise, because you're, you got to respect the juror's time. So all of that sort of truncated version is one, the judge forces to two, and two, that's my style. Get in, get out. Less is yeah. more. You don't want to dilute the power of your case by having it extend on for a long time and interfering with the jurors' lives. So I love federal court. Love no, it. I, yeah, and, and definitely go, moving fast and telling you know and telling the jury why you're doing that and, and that you because be because you respect their time and because yeah. you know their time is important too. And um, and I'll never forget my partner and I were trying a case against Ford. Uh, where our expert came in, you know, and he had, he was like, he was saying that he was expecting to be on the stand for about two days. And we we're like, two days, we're going to, we're going to be done with you in an hour. I mean, you, they may cross you for an hour, but you, I mean, you're going to be out here in two hours. And he's like, no way are we going to be able to do this. And we, and we did it. And then afterwards he, he would uh, let all of his other attorneys working with him. He's like, you know, go talk to these guys on how they tried it because they did it so quick and it, you know, worked. So I, I, I absolutely just get to the point, make it simple and then get them off the stand. Yep. Um, so I do want to bring up that as much as, um, as as part of products work in general and part of this case is, you know, these this 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 lab certification, um, the government, you know, sort of regulations and tests aren't really do, aren't doing what consumers think that they're doing or what a lot of consumers think that they're doing. Um, one of the great facts I thought you had in this case was that the the Consumer Product Safety Commission had sort of done some sort of study or, or, or something that the lab was involved in and that folks from Sunbeam were involved in about the dangers presented by these heaters, specifically when people were sleeping. And yet they had no warning on this heater about the danger presented if you slept, which is like, of course, you're going to do in your house. <laughs> and side note, that's the power of Google. Do you understand how right. <laughs> I, Harshampur, learned about space heaters, difference between radiant and non-radiant? I Googled, found that report. <laughs> Someone wrote 20 years ago, my entire case, I just had to make it simple for the jury. But again, the power of Google, the power of our ability to find 
any topic covered so beautifully, you know, your job is to make it more simple, but just that's the power of Google is finding that report. They didn't give yeah. it to me. The defense okay. didn't give it to me. Oh, that's interesting. So you found that and then you want, so you you found that and then figured out like a lot of the players in your case were actually yeah. involved in this study. Yeah. And by the way, your experts aren't going to give you that stuff. So like maybe one out of 20 experts are that savvy to give you concrete information that makes things understandable to your jury. But most experts don't even have that. You're kind of like going, hey, let's follow what says what it says in here. Is this true? Yeah, it is. Good idea. You know, <laughs> just for people listening. Yeah. Um, well, so speaking of experts, what kind of experts did you use in the case and how do you, how do you like to handle your expert testimony in a case like this? You know, I, I try not to be expert dependent. If you if you really listen, I won the case through the defense. I mean, every single key element of my claim, even if I didn't have an expert, we're going to win. Right. I just want an expert to sort of echo what I'm saying and then credibly. So, you know, many times in our big cases, Steve, you know, you, you know this, you got to go through a bunch of different experts. One, they're just not the right fit. They can't, you know, they're not articulate. It's not the right case. You got to be willing to spend the resources to go through a bunch and get the right one, man, woman, whatever, that can really explain things simply. And then the key part is not crumble on cross. I can't tell you how yeah. many experts from, I don't know what it is about their person. They're like super strong on direct and then they give it up on cross unintentionally. They're either too yeah. nice or nervous. And you're like pulling the expert out going, hey, you're the expert. Please yeah. stop <laughs> letting an unclear answer dilute your testimony. Please be the expert, you know? Yeah, so I don't like my case to be too dependent on experts ever. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Yvonne and I have talked about this. We have this saying around here, if you survive your case and you win it in theirs, um, you know, because your experts, you know, you want them to do their job. You want them to get the, you know, to lay the basis for, you know, what you're saying to the jury. You want them to survive cross. And I've I've seen it both ways. I've seen it where experts do a great job on cross where they they stand up for themselves. And then you see the same, you know, one expert who's great on direct and then just just crumbles on cross and you're like, you know, stand up for yourself. You, you've been spending your whole life learning this stuff. You know, you know, you know, this stand up for yourself, you know, protect your opinions. But in this case, my expert Palmer was amazing. I love him. <laughs> I've been using him for appropriately for other cases, really a good find. I'm very fortunate and blessed. I found him. He really did explain you know, things simply to the jury with we have made some awesome graphics that you could see that, you know, kind of just really visually and then verbally explain things so the jury could follow it. So I, I like I loved our expert in this case. Um, I feel like this is a, a good time to mention my story as a baby lawyer, the first expert deposition that I ever went to and I flew out to defend and the expert shall remain nameless for what I'm about to say, which is that he melted down so bad in his deposition that at a break, he offered us our money back oh, <laughs> and we were in federal court. I mean, there was no, he was disclosed. This was it. And I, I mean, as like a, I think I'd been practicing for less than a year. Um, that was, that was a rough day for well, me and for him. You could edit this out, but one of my favorite experts with you both should know was Burton, Dr. Burton. Right. Who passed he, away. he was in this case, right? Yeah, for a bit. Yes. And yeah. then the bio issues went out. But right. he was my expert in another case. And, he, you know, he's passed away, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. And they asked him at, towards the end of his career, they asked him, so what's this white powder on the seatbelt in a, in a case where the seatbelt against GM became disengaged in a collision because the buckle uh, button was protruding? And he goes, oh, I don't know, maybe cocaine on the record. And mm -hmm. I was like, dude, I, 
what the hell? Yeah. They're going to use that at trial. He's, he goes, they know I was joking. I go, no, no. they don't know you're joking. So <laughs> that's my, no. I just oh. went up to you on your Especially with somebody <laughs> like that, with Dr. Burton, who's uh, so famous for his opinions. And, and unfortunately the end of his career, uh, not, not so great, so. but uh, you yeah. know, um, but actor. yeah. I love it. Yeah, experts don't get to joke during deposition. That yeah. Just, you know, no, not they don't. You do win the horror story. Uh, okay, uh, good. Um, well, so let's talk about, because you mentioned how really your case came together as far as what their defenses were. So let's 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 dig in um, a little bit to their defenses. I I definitely want to talk about their, some of the stuff they said about damages, but I think maybe we'll keep uh, damages separate until we talk a little about that in a minute. But in terms of, of liability. I mean, I want to talk about it, but one of the things that obviously stood out that I had actually read in like the summary that Allison um, had, had done of, of what we were going to be talking about today. She kind of does them ahead of time. And then we actually go and dig in, read your materials. And one of the things that she had said was like, um, you know, that, that one of the defenses was that Kenneth basically should have saved his wife and he mm -hmm. didn't. And so it was his fault. And I thought that cannot be right. Well, let's add a little bit to that because I, I want to make sure everybody understands what Arash was facing here, which was, so, so as I understand the facts, Arash was that, that um, so uh, Amy had rheumatoid arthritis and she was 36 years old, but she you know, ha sometimes had problems getting around. They see this fire break out. Uh, she, they've got, he's, they've got the three-year-old in the bed with them, a Ava. And he, she says, you know, get the kid, get the girls, get them out of here. And he, as I recall, sees her like on the ground, sees Amy on the ground and thinks she's getting out. He gets all the girls out and goes and goes outside and is calling 911 at the same time. And if if I remember, she she he tells 911 that he's going to go back in and get his wife. And they tell him, no, do not go back in the house. And I think one of his daughters was following him back into the house. And, you know, and he had to tell her to get away. And then there was this whole thing about how he was at a neighbor's house for like an hour and they, and the defense was trying to claim that he didn't come out and tell the first responders that his wife was still in there. And I was, and, and, and the way you handled that was great, but I, I wanted to yeah. kind of throw all that stuff. It's worse. Yeah. They had a diagram of the bedroom and in the bedroom, instead of going out back into the home to get his other daughters, there's a patio area with a sliding door and the, they, they called the fire chief. For no reason. I'm like, why are you calling the fire chief? Ooh, you'll find out. Right? I have no idea what they're going to call the fire chief. They call the fire chief. They put him on the stand and they go over a diagram of his room and they go, couldn't Mr. Shineling have taken his daughter and put her out here on the patio, gone back, gotten his wife? And, da, da, and the fire chief is like, um, uh, I, I guess so. Yeah. And then I was, you know, I didn't know they were going to do this. And then instantly I'm thinking in my head, I go, you guys are, so, I'm like, you're so dumb. It's ridiculous. So I get up, I go to the fire chief, I go, and again, you know, I just love what I do. I don't know this. I've, I've never done a fire case before this. I just knew intuitively. I said to the fire chief, I said, when you have kids at the scene um, and they're away from the fire, what's the first thing they want to do? go back in to save another family member. So if he put his little daughter out in that patio, what, what do you know would have happened based on your other experience? She would have gone in and died. I go, so do you blame Mr. Shineling in any way for taking his daughter into the main room to get his two other? He goes, 
No. And so there you go. This Whether they did it subconsciously or consciously of trying to implant that he should have done something different was so offensive, right? And so dumb. But again, that's how Steve, Yvonne, that's how we make a living. I mean, right. we make a living <laughs> exploiting their stupidity and their insensitivity. And that's what results in amazing outlier results. So it's it's offensive and disgusting. But, hey, you went there and you're going to get whacked. And they did. And then it, I couldn't tell in the closing, but it sounded like if they, they were suggesting that he wouldn't come out and tell the first responders that he that she was still in there, almost like. You know, I, I, just if you go to your deepest, darkest place that he wanted his wife to die, you know, so he could, you know, move on or something it almost seemed like the suggestion. I mean, how did that how did they handle that at trial? And I guess I'm just wondering, you know, most of course, we have defense lawyers who we think do things that we don't. like. I mean, I've seen plaintiff lawyers do things that I, I wouldn't ever do. But I mean, who is going to get up there and when it, when a man has saved his three daughters from a burning house and just lost his wife is then going to, you know, go that extra step to, you know, basically throw him under the bus for things like not talking to the first responders. Well, two points. Number one, I keep a list on one note of every crazy defense in deposition. So when they infer arson, they infer he should have gone back in. I keep a track in my motions in Limne. And the first motion Limne we said was, Your Honor, they cannot claim he started the fire or he had something to do with the fire because they are implying it. Do they have evidence or they don't? We went back and forth. Judge said, You're not going there. You have no evidence. You're not going to speculate it. They still tried to get around it. And, you know, what it is, is we experience these attorneys, they're so jaded. Yeah. And they have such a few bag of tricks in their quiver that they go for these things because they don't know any better. And again, I'm not complaining because it's just so dumb. Right. You know what I mean? From a, like an evolved human being, you, if you were a defense attorney, you wouldn't go there. You're like, come on, you're going to just add to damages. So again, it's annoying, but I'm grateful that we have defense attorneys that think they're all that and do stupid shit like that. No, it, it's, it's funny because I, I you know, and I, I don't, I, I, I have said this to some of my defense attorneys, friends. I was like, you know, the best defense attorneys that I know are the guys who say, yeah, we screwed up and we're real sorry about it. And we're going to, you know, try and make sure it doesn't happen again. Just don't, you know, go wild on the damages. And I mean, right. those, those guys, you know, if you defend a case like that, I mean, you, you'll, you'll get some losses, but generally you're going to keep the damages at a, at a much lower amount. Well, for any defense attorneys listening, I don't agree with Steve. He's yeah, absolutely right. wrong. Defend <laughs> aggressively. That's right. what wins statistically. Go, right. What wins your cases. That's right. Go go after the plan, especially the really nice ones. It just, you know. It works. And I agree yeah. with Arash. So <laughs> Steve, right. you're wrong. Right. Um, well, and we should mention too, I mean, this family, look, I mean, look, this is a tragedy no matter what your family circumstances are, but Kenneth and, and Amy had been married for, I think, like 17 years, had been had been married, got married when they were pretty young. High school sweethearts. Um, yeah. High school sweethearts. He was he, I I wrote this down somewhere and I can't find it. He was a teacher, maybe. And she um, I'm not sure. I can't well, find she what she disabled, did. Really. But yeah, he was a teacher. And I mean, this lovely human beings, lovely family. Yeah, one of the things they did in pretrial discovery is they hired this notorious plaintiff defense neuropsychologist as a psychologist, Kyle Boone. And her her opinion was he's not grieving properly because on Facebook he's smiling and he's at soccer games and therefore 
he's not grieving properly. Now, obviously, the judge did not allow this person to testify because that's not a valid opinion. Right. But this is the kind of garbage we have to deal with leading up to trial is them hiring experts to say the most insane things, you know, yeah. and you're just like, why? Yeah. 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 I mean, that is just that. My favorite part was like, so, hey, do you have social media? She goes, not really. I go, well, your kids. Yeah. Do you think most people just go on social media and go, I want to kill myself today. My wife is <laughs> right. dead for a year. Life <laughs> exactly. sucks. I can't find a new girlfriend. My daughters keep crying, missing their mommy. And I'm a loser. Is that what people put on Facebook or do they do the opposite? She's like, Ugh. and I'm like, you know what? You're you're an idiot. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. One of the things that, again, that I read and could not really believe was that, and I guess this connects to how you were establishing what Kenneth was going through and his damages. Um, so I want you to talk about how you established that, but also it sounds like one of they attacked him saying he was he was over reporting. 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, look, when we do brain injury cases or psychological cases, they use these distortion of what a computer prints out or what statistics show out of context that someone's over-reporting symptoms, under-reporting symptoms. All of that are just hypothesis based on comparing an individual's response to a statistical sample. And it doesn't mean shit to the average juror if you right. explain it properly. Some people, if you ask them, are you OK? Their leg is missing. They say, I'm fine. But they're not. Some people, you ask them, are they OK? And they're, you know, got a, a bad cut and they, oh, they tend to dr dramatize. None of it has to do with whether they are or aren't really injured. We're all just unique individuals and we respond differently to trauma. And it's just garbage. So were they were they saying that he was over reporting when like like speaking about his his grief? Yeah. So we had a psychologist, the best Anthony reading. He has an English accent. He's phenomenal. Explained PTSD to the jury so beautifully. We came up with the PTSD thing. You want, let me side note the PTSD thing. Yeah. It was it was a work of art. Uh, we, I thought of that. I'm not trying to give myself credit, but I think when you're an open, kind, loving, evolved human being, which I hope everyone listening strives to be, these things come to you. I thought to myself, I said, you know, traditional PTSD is we see a movie, a, a soldier goes to war, they see something horrific, they come back, they can't resolve that intrusive thought and they go off the deep end. Well, when you go to war, you sign up to go to war. At least you have a yeah. notion. I'm going to see this. A, Three-year-old girl and a nine-year-old daughter and 11-year-old daughter have no concept of harm at that age, no concept, no break in safety. And when a fire like that happens, when they're at, they smell it, they taste it, they feel it, and their mom dies, that is PTSD on another level, especially when it's chronic two years later. And just explain, he and me explained that to the jury. And it was just amazing. So that when they get up to cross him, I'm like, well, isn't it true he overreported on this day and this test? The jury's like looking at these people going like, what? So we had our expert. They didn't have one because they withdrew her because she was an, a, a moron. Right. And so <laughs> their only cross was these little tid, you know, little stupid arguments. That was it. And like it probably landed with a thud with the jury. The jury's probably like looking going, what? What, what are you talking about? You know? So. Yeah. Well, and it's especially wild because it's sort of like, you know, and I think that they're putting this together. Obviously, you know, he's he's in this situation where he's talking about his grief and stuff in part, in part, you know, because of his case and he and because he kind of has to for that for, for you to get some sort of diagnosis or treatment or whatever it is. So then to be attacked for talking about it like too much. Well, can you can you can, I said to the jury, I think I said this is worse than any horror movie you could construct. Right. There's no horror movie. Your best friend from high school dies in a fire. And in an instant, you go from being a dad and a father to being mom, dad, three girls, not only dealing with your trauma, your physical pain, but your daughter's physical pain, your daughter's physical trauma, the loss of the mom. Every time you go to an event, it's just you. There's no mom. You, you can't construct something more horrific than this. So what is the cross to that? Shut right. up, sit down. Right. But they didn't right. right. So speaking of, I'm, I'm interested, you know, we talked a little bit about how um, the, the PTSD and how you explained that and, and how you established it um, with Kenneth and, and for the daughters, especially considering their age. Um, what did you do differently um, for them to help it establish their damages? Well, it was interesting because we were very, the judge actually was 
limiting what I could do with the girls correctly because we didn't want to traumatize them. Right. So we played the 911 tape, I think audio. We played some, you know, the foundational facts for for a bystander claim and then PTSD, some of which I had to infer through circumstantial evidence rather than asking the girls directly. Mm -hmm. They challenged that on neutral stuff and on appeal and the judge, the judge in the court's like, get out of here. Like you don't have to prove it directly out of their mouth. So that was tough. Not wanting to exploit these young girls in courtroom. Cause that would be ridiculous. You know, we, right. that's not the point. So it was very delicate, but we handled it properly and, and really with the judge's assistance, cause he was protecting the girls. He didn't want too much trauma in the courtroom, but getting, you know, as trial attorneys or attorneys, getting the distinction of the three buckets of damages they mm-hmm. had was mm-hmm. so key. Because if you look at this verdict, $60 million, you're like, that's insane. But when you break it down, that it's their loss, the lifetime loss of their mother's love and support, one, their physical injury and harm of the fire, two, and then three, experiencing the harm to their sisters and the death of their mother is a separate, distinct injury. Breaking it down allowed us to get a much larger award than I think you normally would have that was upheld in one of the most conservative courthouses you can think of, Orange County Federal Court with the Ninth District. So that was critical. And we spent a lot of time going over the damage distinctions with the judge. And that, I think that was really helpful in getting a larger verdict. And it's not it, it's an appropriate verdict given the lifetime of harm and the three distinct type of damages they had. Did um, just uh, and maybe you said this and maybe I just missed it. But did, did you put each of the girls on the stand or, you know, I th- I think that the baby, the youngest we we I don't remember if we did. We may not have. OK. Um, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I didn't mention this when I was talking about the verdict. And these were these were broken down even further um, right. in, in terms of of how Arash was saying for your your past injury, your future injuries, loss of the mom, the injury to yourself. But it was nine point nine nine five million for Mr. Shineling, um, fifteen point five nine five million for Addison, sixteen point one oh five for Alexia and sixteen point nine five five for Ava. And then those were further even broken down down. I mean, it was a great, um, it was a great verdict form in terms of it seemed like really being able to preserve both your verdict and your damages because they had to go through and find, you know, was there, um, you know, for, was there strict liability for failure to warrant? Was there negligent failure to warrant? Um, they had to make findings about consumer expectation and risk benefit, both of which they agreed with you, but I assume you only needed one. Right. And, and, you know, as trial attorneys, you got to be an appellate attorney. So, you know, these defense attorneys push for simple verdict forms. They don't want anything broken down. And then you're thinking in your head, Hey, I'm going to put on the record. If you want one line for damages, but I think is inappropriate, you're waiving any argument that we, that, that if you reverse this component, that we can decipher what percentage is bystander and what percentage is wrongful death, right? You understand that because as plaintiff attorneys, we want the jury to see all the separate harms, whereas the defense attorney really wants to simplify thinking that no one's going to write 60 million, right? So you have to think of these things, make a clear record and explain to the judge, we do need to break it down, consumer risk, separate them so that if there's a reversal, we don't have to retry the case if it's something that's inconsequential to liability or, or you can remove that component of damages. So, so I, I have a question. This is a, a nerdy law question, uh, but I, I, you know, like in Georgia, we only have risk utility. We don't have consumer expectation for uh, strict liability. So my, why is it, it, why bring both claims? I guess, why bring both consumer expectation and risk utility? You only have to win under one of them, right? 
consumer is much easier. So right. many theaters as you can. So you don't want to go under consumer expectation alone if there's a viable argument that it's not a consumer expectation appropriate case. Okay. Because then you're just asking for a new trial. So I always ask for both, no matter what, argue them separately, explain why it's distinct and then put both on the verdicts form so I don't have to retry the case if I can. Right. And, and, and you know, and, I mean, you, you obviously, uh, I mean, did a great job. They, But they did actually on risk utility find that the um, that the that the risk of the heater's design did not outweigh the benefits. I mean, so they they found for you on consumer expectation, failure to warn and everything else. So, yeah. it, it, um, I mean, it, it worked out really well. I was just wondering about that, you know, because you only need to win under one of those theories. And and uh, in the way, you know, especially with this uh, this auto shutoff device that doesn't work. I mean, consumer expectation. I mean, this case seems like it's perfect fit for consumer expectation and then for failure to warn, right. um, you know, so but I, that, I was just curious about that. Um, speaking of, of being an appellate lawyer, even when you're a trial lawyer, I, I thought, one, I don't know if you remember this, Arash, because it was, it was, you know, 10 years ago that you were trying it or no, wait, 10 years ago that it happened. Um, still several years ago when you tried it, but, um, the defense lawyer was like trying to walk the, the jury through the verdict form in his closing. And I think he actually conf got confused on what he wanted their answer to be. <laughs> right. You actually corrected it to make sure that like <laughs> there wasn't going to be some issue there that they were going to make a big right. deal out of. Right. My style is if they can't show something, I'm a gentleman, I'm cool. I show it for them. There's no animosity. There's never aggressiveness. I'm always helpful. Jurors love it when you're yeah. a fair, you know, fair guy who's not trying trying to cheat or game the system. It's all That's about right. our credibility. When the minute I start driving to court to I get home, my credibility is at issue and I'm never going to look like the bad guy. In fact, any opportunity that I could look like the good guy, I'm going to seize it there. If I heard him say something wrong, good guy and appellate attorney in me gets involved and fixes it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that was, that was funny. I just happened to notice that, but you're right. I mean, and the jury doesn't miss anything. We talk about that all the time, but I mean, they notice how you hand you know, copies of exhibits to each other. They notice, you know, every little detail. Oh, so they, yeah, they, I mean, they notice the shoes you're wearing. They notice right. everything. <laughs> right. But being yeah. courteous to opposing counsel and witnesses and stuff like that, I feel like they're always, they don't miss a thing. Yeah. Jurors, the people can't listen, but I got lots of arm tattoos. And then <laughs> the top five, I got the new neck tattoos. Right. Jurors love that stuff now. They love the first thing they want is, can I see your the arm? Can I touch them? I'm like, okay, go for it. Really? <laughs> so oh, let me yeah. ask you. Let me they ask you this: it. in uh in in uh during voir dire, do you uh do you touch on that issue of uh of the tattoos, or you just leave no. it alone? No, I just leave it alone. Yeah. I was just wondering about that. There, there's a there's a famous uh, criminal defense lawyer here in, in Georgia who has very, very long hair. And he always likes to say, you know, you're not going to hold my opponent's short hair against him. You know, uh, you? I mean, if I could make yeah. something funny of it, right. I should. Right, right. <laughs> I yeah. I'll start thinking of something. Um, there was one thing I wanted to touch on about damages that um, I saw that you did that I was wondering if you do regularly, um, because I thought it was really cool. You were talking about you were trying to give the jury an understanding, I think, for future damages and the, the length of time involved. And so one of the things that you had done was you basically went back in time, sort of the same amount of time. And we're talking about the different presidents and the different sort of historical and pop culture things that were happening. And it was really effective because when you read it, you think back like, oh, God, yeah. Remember when Reagan was president? Mm -hmm. Um 
but I was wondering if that was something that you do a lot and what, what things you pick to talk about to make sure it resonates. Yeah. I mean, I full credit due. I stole that from another plaintiff's attorney, Brown Green, who probably stole it from somebody else in California. It's important to give jurors a context of time that when you're asking for 30 years of damages, they don't really understand how long 30 years is intuitively, right? Because you're looking back going floppy disk, you know, USB was right. invented, Russian wall goes down, <laughs> Milli Vanilli. And a lot of these references, the jurors are like, I have no idea idea what you're talking about, but then that makes it feel like an even longer time. So (laughs) I think it's important because these appellate courts look at these numbers and they don't understand it's 20, 30 years of time. So your record better give an argument that supports this is not compensating for one event. This is 40 years of not having the love of your mom. And if I break that number down, it's not a lot of money. And you have to explain that to the jury. So they're not sticker shocked by your number. Like, look, the harm that they caused is 40 years of harm to four people. They have to pay for that harm. If it was 30 people or one person, the damages would be different. You are here to come up with a fair number for four people for all these years. And so I find that going over a timeline is another effective way of showing how long this period of time is. Yeah, I I just really like that because I think a lot of times we can really dig into the numbers or break down periods of time in some ways to come up with a damages number, but we, we don't always spend a lot of time on, on, you know, helping people think about that length of time in other ways, you know, just in and of itself. So I I just really liked that. Well, look, we're not just throwing, look, if you're a real competent attorney, you're not throwing out a number because you want to get that number and brag about it. You're throwing out a number that you credibly believe reflects the true value of the harm that your client suffered. And you better be able to explain it in easy to understand terms. And so our job is to give multiple ways, whether it's the Picasso painting, the value of money or a timeline or whatever. Our job is to explain in easy to understand ways because the defense is not going to explain it that way. They're going to give a bunch of gobbledygook. And then, you know, my favorite thing is I may not have done this. This case is tally up how much they paid their experts. Divide that by the number of years of harm and go, look, they're saying to you to pay a million dollars, which is really five thousand dollars a year, which is more than they paid one month of one of these experts. Yeah. That's how this side values reasonable compensation. I think yeah. you have a right to reject what they're saying on damages, don't you? You know, Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I didn't, I saw what you had said in closing about ways to think about damages and ways to think about the amounts, but I didn't go back and check. Did they, what they ultimately came up with, did they give you exactly what you asked for? Did they give you more? Do you remember? No, they always give me less. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot still. So (laughs) yeah, I wasn't complaining. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so this was a federal court jury unanimous. I had 15 minutes of voir dire. I mean, it was the, as tough as you can get. Super conservative jurisdiction. The so, best part about, ask me, what was your favorite part about voir dire? What was your favorite part about voir dire? The defense attorney gets up and he was like, what are you doing? He's like, so Sunbeam is part of blah, blah, blah. And we sell coffee makers, toasters, hair dryers, like trying to say how amazing this company right. is, Right. And he goes like literally rattles off like billion dollar entities, you know, as if I wasn't I wasn't allowed to even say that, obviously, because I'm yeah. focusing on finances. He goes, does anyone have any familiar with these in, with these uh, devices? Someone raises his hand. He goes, yeah, the hair sunbeam hair dryer. And he goes, oh, what's your familiarity? Yeah. One of them started a fire in my Lake Tahoe, <laughs> uh, Tahoe cabin last week. I looked at my co-counsel. I said, it's like, is this 
this guy, yeah. is there like, I believe in a higher power or something right. happening right. in this world? Like, <laughs> what the hell? They kicked him off. But I was like, right. what are the right. chances of that? You know, so that was my favorite part of your moment. Yeah. I was like, I'm done. We're good. Yeah. We'll stipulate yeah. that the fire. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I am, I am glad that you brought that up though, because we um we do talk about about Vordire a lot and how it factors into a case and what people decide to do with it or don't do with it. But we touched a little bit on the fact that you were in federal court, but just to make the connection for those who don't practice in federal court a lot or um, who aren't lawyers is that it's very different in federal court. You do not get to ask a lot of questions at all, and you're really kind of stuck with the jury that that you get. So, um, yeah. this result, it's not like you really had the chance to pick out the people that, uh, you knew would pack a wallop. Sometimes it, you get no voir dire. That's right. It, it, yeah. And, 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 or sometimes you get the, the, the federal judge is the one who does the voir dire and, mm -hmm. um, you know, even, you know, with all due respect to all my federal judges, you know, they don't always do a voir dire that I would, uh, want somebody to do. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so speaking of kind of the rules in federal court, were you able to talk to this jury afterwards? No, he, he, that meant many federal judges, whereas in state court, they leave them, they tell them you could talk. You, you yeah. talk. He said, no, uh, you know, if they want to talk to you or not, but wasn't implying they should. And yeah. they left out the other entrance, uh, yeah. get a chance to talk to them. Gotcha. Um, I figured I was just curious. So you said that, um, so this is the central district of California and I know you've said it's a Orange county. So what, uh, for us people on the East coast, Orange County, where, what, what's Republican what okay. one like one of the most conservative locations ever. Okay. It's all Republican or maybe it's going more democratic lately, but back then it was, it was hardcore Republican, super yeah. conservative. I mean, again, this type of case constructed correctly, even with a Republican jury, you can win. You know, right. it's just, right. just trying it correctly. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it, it comes back to credibility and responsibility. I mean, those are Republican values that everybody can understand that, you know, is, is being honest and, and taking responsibility for your actions. And, the, you know, and the great thing that you had in your case is that, the, you know, the, you had their engineers, you know, agreeing uh, is space heater shouldn't catch a house on fire. And, you know, this sensor is not going to work. I mean, he admitted he knew it wasn't going to, you know, figure out that something three feet away was overheating. And so, you know, but yet they were still unwilling to take any responsibility for what had happened here rules-based arguments you know road ru ru rules of the road i mean i i never really read it but i always use rules yeah. rules of the road people love following everyone's got to follow rules kids at home at work driving we all got to follow the rules and those rules are designed to prevent exactly what happened here and they were broken and i get a pay up that's right um I was just looking not not to, just to go back for a second. I was looking at my notes and and now what you said, what you did about about your favorite moment of Vordire, it makes me think that you probably mentioned this in purpose on purpose. I think it was during your closing. I can't really tell from my notes, but you had kind of made a point of of mentioning how many products Sunbeam has, and so they're just kind of putting that stuff out there without necessarily making sure it's safe. Well, yeah. um, you used it to your advantage, basically, what he had said. Well, the jury was clear that the parent entity would take over this other entity and then just start slapping things on the box and then selling it with no sort of retrospective analysis of, OK, what are we selling? Is this safe? Have we designed it properly? Just in the business of making money. And that's the responsibility of the jurors to apply California law to hold them accountable. You want to do stuff like that? Big corporation? 
You shouldn't, but if you're going to do it and we catch you, we're going to hold you responsible. And here we are. This jury is going to hold you accountable. Yeah. I just love that. I love any time that you can turn like one of what the defense thinks is one of their good facts into one of your good facts. Yeah, and it just yeah. feels like you know, that's what really you were able to do with this big company with so many products is making it work for you. I tell people, and it sounds so egotistical, my processor is so fast that they pull this shit in the courtroom. I've already like five steps ahead. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to, I like it. I get so excited, like a little kid. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to use that somewhere in this case. But yeah, they give you yeah, gifts yeah. so many times. They yeah. give you these little gifts. And you're like, Thank so that, you. that reminds me of something else that you did that I, um, that I would have liked to be there to see you doing, because I imagine you were really excited as well, is that you mentioned, I guess you were getting the dailies, the transcripts of what everybody was saying. And so during the defense closing, when he was paraphrasing inaccurately what people had testified to, including the experts, you were searching the transcripts for those um, terms or those phrases, and then were able to stand up in your rebuttal. And you basically explained to the jury exactly what you were doing and what you were looking for and that oh. stuff didn't happen. I, I love that. I, I love it. You know, it's called text map or any program, right? I put all the transcripts in a program called text map and I could do a word search. And I literally, if I, I, every trial, the defense gets up, says something I'm searching, I find it. I make a PowerPoint clip of that testimony and then rebuttal. I'm like, you remember what he just said to you? It's not true. Here's the transcript. Come on. They've got the transcript. Like I do. He has the same software access, same software. I do. So not only is he wrong, but it's misleading. It's not right. okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's so it's shocking. How many of these attorneys have these yellow pads that everything goes in there and they're like not utilizing, <clears throat> uh, you know, software. I mean, again, it's, it, it, don't share this too much. Maybe cut this out. But the reason we can win small plaintiff firms is that we're actually like technologically hip. We use things like software, whereas these big firm attorneys don't right. know, because for them to buy a pencil, they need a committee to agree on everything. <laughs> and so we're sort of advantaged in our in our sort of sense to be more nimble and we get things better and access to information easier. But, yeah, that program is TextMap and it's amazing and everyone should use it. I just really like that. And it made me, I, I always get very stressed out by dailies during trial because I feel like I have so much other stuff to do that one that, um, but the, but I think that's part of it is because I just, you know, been using it uh, like a lot of times I'd use it to go back if it was some sort of issue with somebody's testimony or an objection or corrective instruction and how all that worked out. Um, but I never really thought about listening to somebody's closing and then just sort of being ready to break it off. So well, I make, oh, I I make a PowerPoint yeah. during trial. So I'm taking the dailies and all the admissions. I'm making a clip, putting it in my PowerPoint for closing. And there you go. As I'm going yeah. along. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And you're doing that yourself. I mean, you don't have somebody helping you with that or is that? Yeah, uh, that's not something you can delegate because they don't know. So right. I have a lot of support before trial and after trial, but in trial, it's me. I'm the tech, I'm the cut and paster, I'm the searcher. And then again, you know, it's reinforcement. You read it in yeah. person, mm -hmm. you hear it in person, you then cut and paste it. You remember again, then in closing, you have the freedom to really talk. Yeah. That, that, that brings up a good point, you know, for, for all lawyers, but, it, but also for young lawyers, I noticed that during your opening, your, uh, I think your presentation or your tech, your technology went out on you and then you proceeded without it. So talk about, uh, you know, just kind of handling that on your, on the fly where you're all of a sudden your presentation stops. Sure. I don't rehearse anything. Zero. I have never rehearsed my opening or closing or my direct or cross. 
at most, I'll have an outline. I use PowerPoint as my outline not to forget where I'm going in opening, but I'm able to generate a five-minute conversation about anything and explain it anywhere. I trust myself. So you could shut the power off. I'll still explain the case. In fact, it's probably better to turn my PowerPoint off because yeah. then I tend to be more simple and direct. And I'm like, like not diluting by looking to my left or right. So yeah, yeah I, I can I can explain the case anytime, anywhere. Yeah. And you, and, and uh, as a practice pointer to anybody who's going to stand up in front of a jury and try a case, I mean, you should know your case well enough that no matter what happens and no matter who you're talking to, you can lay out the case for them. I mean, and you should know the facts that well. That's, I remember learning that as a young lawyer, you know, when, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get up and like hold my notes and, and as older lawyers, like you should know your case well enough that you don't need notes in front of you. And I, I still keep notes around just in case, but I, I try never to have anything, you know, on me or in, around. Well, me. again, you know, Jerry Spence wrote this, that if you read, he, he would just generate his closings off the top of his head. If you read his closing, it would have poor grammar. Some of it wouldn't make any sense, but it's super effective because he's present and it's organic and he's connecting. Yeah. If you're stuck looking at your notes or an outline and you're not present and you're reading, no one's connecting with you. So that's again, right. lose the notes, <laughs> trust yourself. If you don't know the case enough, you don't belong in that courtroom. Sorry. That's right. Well, you know, and that, that's, that also brings up a point that we've talked about on cross-examination is I hate people who use like really detailed uh, cross-examination outlines and then they get stuck to them. You, I mean, you, because then you're not listening. You're not listening to what the witness is saying. And they may say something that, you know, was either a great admission or takes you down a new, new road. Um, and you've got to be willing, you got to be ready to listen and go with that. So well, that's uh, what makes the fun trial fun yeah. and interesting is going off script. That's right. That's right. Please exactly. go off script with me, please. <laughs> Let's see. You're, it's going to be fun. I promise you. <laughs> One one thing that I did want to mention in your closing that I really liked, and it's something that we we also talked about before, which is at right at the beginning, you talked about how you had been uh, Amy's voice through trial, but now you were turning the case over to the jury and it was their turn to be Amy's voice. And I always like that, you know, uh, that, you know, when you're there with the jury, you're there working on this together. I mean, you're in this together. You're on this journey together to help your clients get, you know, justice. Um, so I just really liked kind of painting that picture and giving them that responsibility right at the beginning of, of your close of, of talking about how now it's your time to speak for Amy. Of course. I mean, the way I look at being an effective trial lawyer is you're a teacher. You're explaining things in simple terms so everyone can follow along. But we're doing this as a group class. And at the end, your homework or assignment is to follow through and render full justice. That's your yeah. job. Whether it's defense verdict or plaintiff's verdict, that's your job. Obviously, we want a plaintiff's verdict. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, uh, uh, I'm going to uh, I wanted to ask a couple of questions. You sent us some of the motions in limine. And so I just wanted to see that there's a motion in limine about in uh, a previous residential fire. It was had there been a, another fire involving um, your clients? He, yeah, he had a rental property that had a fire. And so there was suspicion of arson based on that prior fire that was never found to be true. And so if there's no defense of arson, whether there was a prior fire or not, it's irrelevant. And the judge right. kept saying to them, are you claiming arson? No. You sure? Because if you aren't, you can if you want. I mean, I don't know how effective that would be with this jury, but are you? And then he would like ask them over and over and they said, no arson claim. Well, then this is not coming in. What's it right. relevant to other than trying to make him look bad? Yeah. So, right. That makes sense. 
Um, and then when then the other part and is I, I'm assuming all this was kept out of evidence, but it also says declining to take a polygraph. Was there a I guess where I one thing I'm wondering, was there any sort of a criminal investigation or at least a, a, a initial part of it or something like I that? I mean, they kind of there was there were red flags for arson. But then uh, they never pursued it because there was no arson. I mean, right. we know the space heater started a fire and it was from a hamper of clothes and th there's nothing else. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, well, Steve, I got to ask all my questions, so I'm 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 good to go. Do you have anything else you want, we want to make sure we talk about? No, I think we've talked about everything. I, one thing I you know, just from a um, you, this case was initially filed in San Bernardino County and you had some claims, I think, involving some municipalities or, or counties. Do you want to talk through that real sure. quick or is I mean, that when you get a case, you sometimes don't know who's responsible. And as right. an attorney, you have to pursue everything. And we were thinking maybe there was a delay in coming with water, but then they had immunities and then that didn't ultimately factually prove to be true. So it's just one of those, be careful, raise all the claims so you preserve your rights. And then right. we don't, we, you know, our firm is very strict. If we don't have a viable case, we don't extort, we don't ask for this. We, if I don't have a viable case, I'm done. I don't pursue it, period. My credibility is everything. So yeah. if we don't prove our case or I know it's not provable, we drop it. Yeah. And that's, you know, I feel like we've said that so many times on the show, but, um, you know, in, in trial, in, in everything you do uh, as a lawyer, especially as a plaintiff's lawyer, because we, we already start out behind, you know, the eight ball. We are, we're already starting out, you know, in most people's eyes, like, you know, greedy trial lawyers, that kind of thing. So being absolutely credible uh, with the judge with the jury, with everything you do and, and bending over backwards to make sure that you preserve that credibility and for your clients, um, you know, it's just so important. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's the number one thing you have to do at trial, in my opinion. In life. Right. Exactly. Your That's integrity right. is everything. With That's yourself right. Yourself and with others. I guess we should ask, um, when when Kenneth took the stand, I mean, I know they were going after him pretty hard as far as blaming him, not only for, you know, not going back in to save his wife, but also just starting the fire in the first place. Um, you know, how I mean, he must have done great on the stand, but I'm just wondering, how did he do on the stand? He did great. And, you know, he had to admit that he knew he wasn't supposed to get clothes in front of and that maybe they allowed clothes to get in front of the, the heater. So. He was honest. He owned it. He regrets it. But the fact is, before that fire ever started, before any of this, the company knew this would happen. They didn't know who would get hurt and who would die, but they knew and they didn't do their job as a company to sell a safe product or at least warn about it. So right. it was that simple. He could have said anything. I don't think it was going to really change the outcome. We knew fault would be allocated somewhat because the jury is going to be fair and they did. And it, and it sounded like the, the um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, as far as other incident evidence, you know, a lot of times in product liability cases, we'll talk about other incident evidence. And um, it sounds like they're there, or at least you didn't have any that got into evidence. Did they try and use that to their defense to say, look, this has never happened before? Kind they of thing? did. Okay. They tried to argue and they always do. But then I pointed out that the evidence of that wasn't even admissible. It wasn't even like no foundation that anyone actually searched. Mm -hmm. We couldn't trust their record keeping of reports. So it was, again, a bogus defense that had no foundation and that really showed they were stretching and not being truthful with the jury. So, yes, they got to say no other fires or blah, blah, blah. But then I showed the jury based on the testimony that that claim wasn't supported at all. It wasn't even trustworthy. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, this has just been a great uh, discussion, Rosh. Is there anything about the Shineling versus uh, Sunbeam products case that you want to make sure our listeners have heard that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Yeah. Uh, lots of attorneys rejected this case. If you looked at the set of facts, it, when we first got it, you would never take it. We spent like over half, a, way over half a million in costs on this case. This is the kind of case that most attorneys would run from. And the way I look at it is I love difficult liability, big damage cases that are viable to me because all I need to see is a path to justice. Whether they see it or not, I don't really care. Whether anyone else sees it or not, I don't care. But these are the cases you get to try. These are the cases that make you cry. These are the cases that are the reason you were born to do what you do, that you give up and sacrifice everything we do in our personal life and family because we're professionals and we're here to make a difference and get justice. So this is a prime example of why we do and love what we do. So what was it about this case that, you, at least when you were first looking at it, that made you say, hey, we need to take a closer look at it and pursue it? Well, that they, they knew people would get combustible material within the heater. And uh, yet there had to be a better way if there was a safety valve to shut it off, to shut it off. And why didn't that work? So and then I had an attorney working for me, one of my best friends from college, Corey Arzumanian. He really was the sort of Don Quixote crazy person who was like really aggressively saying, this is a case, this is a case. I love this case. Let's pursue this case. And so everyone needs, you know, that sort of champion, unreasonable champion in their office. <laughs> right. really, Jesus, we all probably have one or a right. component of that in ourselves. And uh, yeah, it was he, he was key in making sure we realized the potential in this case. So very lucky to have really good supporting staff and an attorney that worked really hard on it with me. Well, very good. Well, I, I have a sort of fun question for you. I know that uh, you also like to DJ from time to time. So I'm wondering if when you're getting ready for trial, do you have a specific playlist or specific songs you like to listen to? It used to be, uh, well, I'm a techno DJ, techno producer. That's not really going to get you in the mood for trial. Um, it used to be like rap, you know, right, like right. a lot of Jay-Z songs would get me ready for trial. But these days it's less music because I play music so much and it's more just being chill and yeah. quiet and meditating and doing yoga. That really gets me more in, in the frame of mind than pumped up music. That's more for when you're younger. Yeah, then, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going to say that, um, you know, I remember when I tried a case, this is years ago, and I had found the uh, Neil Young Massey Hall album from 1971. And I must have listened to that album, I don't know, like a hundred times when I was getting ready for trial. I just liked it so much. But I agree with you. Like, you know, when once you know your facts of your case, you know, and, and it's, it's it's important to know everything, but it's also important just to take some time to just relax and just kind of just think about your case without like, you know, you know, overstressing yourself, because that's at least for me, that's when you're like, hey, I never really thought about this idea or, you know, come up with a new angle on how you're going to pursue something when you just sort of relax and let it come to you. So they say it's the space between the notes. Right. right? And so you got to let that space in between the notes to occur in silence. And really, if you're just open, loving, caring, know your case inside and out, you'll be in the courtroom and things will come to you. Magical moments will come to you um, because you're just open. And that's the way you need to be in trial. 
Yeah. Well, Arash, this has been great. Uh, we've been talking to Arash Hamampur. Uh, you can look him up at hamampur.com. That's H-O-M-A-M-P-O-U-R.com. Uh, Arash, and again, I'll remind everybody that we've been talking about the Shineling versus Sunbeam products case, which resulted in a uh, verdict for uh, the Shineling family of 58 million six hundred fifty thousand uh just a fantastic verdict and arash this has been just a a great conversation and we really appreciate it thank you it's been my pleasure and then remember upheld on appeal and paid by the defendant (laughs) that that is the best uh that is the best news especially when you can take it all the way up and, and hold it up and make them pay every penny that's uh that's fantastic hallelujah thank you for having me ladies and gentlemen of the jury have you reached a verdict Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.